Well, as we have entered the last section, the last segment where Jesus is heading towards the cross, this is what the, the gospel, the gospel of Matthew, and really all the gospels, this is their focal point. This is what they drive towards. But we've heard it so often, we've heard this story so often, that one of my greatest fears for us all is that we might treat our faith in Jesus and this section, which is the core of our faith, flippantly. There's been much damage in the church with the notion that following Jesus is easy, that it will cost you very little, that all it takes is raising a hand or saying a prayer, and that that's enough. Jesus has shown throughout the gospel that following him is not cheap, it's not easy. And in fact, it is impossible. It will cost you everything. Really, this kind of simplistic notion that it's easy to follow Jesus or that it's easy to come to him, it kind of, I think, stems from the simplistic notion that what Jesus did on the cross was easy. This thought that, yeah, because Jesus is God, it's very easy for him to become a man and to go to the cross. But what we see in Matthew dispels that notion. When we think that Jesus' work is easy, when we think it's easy to follow Jesus, Jesus and his work are diminished. Now, as I've argued the last few weeks, uh, for Matthew's audience, for his Jewish audience, Jesus was diminished kind of for a different reason, um, because the very idea of a crucified Messiah was laughable and despicable. It was disturbing. It was, what, what are you thinking? The Messiah is a strong ruler, the one who will rule over Israel and the nations. He's going to conquer, and he's going to set up his kingdom. And those things are true. Those things are very much true. But this aspect of the crucified Messiah, of this being central to Jesus' mission, would have been... A stumbling block. That's how Paul says it. And as a Jew in 1 Corinthians, he says this, this notion of a crucified Messiah is a stumbling block. It's laughable. It's despicable. Jesus is diminished. And what Matthew has been doing as he is, laid out his, is laying out his account of Jesus' death is that he is showing that the very thing that you think is laughable, the very thing that you think would diminish Christ, diminish him for being the Messiah, is the very thing that actually shows that he's the Messiah. We've seen, especially last week, this idea that Jesus has total knowledge of what is happening. Jesus is in total control over the situation. He's not a hapless victim. He's not a weakling. He's not uh, unaware of being betrayed. He's not a, unaware of the plots against him. No, very much he knows that it's happening. He's in control of it, and he knows the significance of what is happening. That's where we ended last week, the significance of his death as he institutes the Lord's Supper. And this week, that, that idea of Jesus being in control, of him showing that he's in control, uh, that he knows all that is happening to him, it continues. But the, there's a shift in the sense that uh, now the emphasis is not only knowledge of what is happening, but submission. Submission to the Father's plan. Submission to the Father's Land, which is the main theme that really runs through these kind of three episodes that we're going to look this morning. 
And the main idea behind it all is this, follow the dying Messiah. That's what Matthew wants. That's what Matthew wants for his Jewish audience, whether they're believers who they've already accepted Jesus as to be the Messiah, but they need to be bolstered in their faith, or a Jew who might convert to believing that Jesus is the Messiah. He wants his audience to follow, to follow the Messiah, to follow the dying Messiah. The dying Messiah who is, shows himself to be the Messiah submitted to the Father's will. So that's the big idea for this morning. Follow the dying Messiah submitted to the Father's will. And so you're going to see that aspect of submission to the Father's plan throughout each of these episodes that we look at. Let's look at verses 31 through 35 to begin with. And here we see that Jesus submits to the Scriptures for his disciples' scattering. Jesus submits to the Scriptures for his disciples scattering. So you remember how it ended last week? They had the Lord's Supper, where really Jesus has interpreted that, that in that context of the Passover meal, he's interpreted the significance of his death. And then verse 30 is kind of this transition where they're going out to the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem. And that's where we left them. Verse 31, then we see this. Then Jesus said to them, now this, who's the them? This is the, the 12. This is the people this is his closest disciples who reclined with him at table. That just happened. Then Jesus said to them, you will all stumble or become offended because of me this night. So this word here, it's translated in the ESV, fall away. It's a word that's used multiple times. It, it kind of has this idea of um, encountering a trap uh, or sense the idea of maybe stumbling um, and, but throughout Matthew, this word has been used kind of in a spectrum, from all the way from stumbling just kind of in generically in sin of one sense or another, all the way up to and including apostasy, walking away. And so as we encounter this term, when Jesus says, you're all going to fall away, all of you, the 12, and we don't know exactly when, Jesus, or when Judas left the group, but the 11, the 12 that are here, uh, he's saying, you're all going to stumble. You're all going to be offended by me. Jesus is going to become offensive to his disciples. That's what he's saying. In such a way that they will walk away from him. They will go away from him. You all fall away because of me this night. It's going to happen soon. Remember, it's at nighttime already. And within the next few hours they are going to sin in a grievous way. They're going to walk away from Jesus. They're going to stop following Jesus. They're going to become offended by Jesus. And Jesus backs this up, and this is significant for kind of our theme. He backs this up with Scripture. He says, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, Jesus has cited scripture. He has said generically that what is happening to him in all of the cross is, is according to scripture, which automatically means it's according to God's plan. God's written it out. He, this isn't new. This isn't plan B. This is God's predetermined plan for his son. And here, Jesus just backs up the idea that the disciples are going to become offended and they're going to walk away from Jesus. He just uh, he supports that from citing Scripture. Now, the Scripture he cites is Zechariah 13.7. So you can turn back a few pages. If you turn to the left, you're going to hit Malachi first and then Zechariah, Old Testament prophet. 
And we will look a little bit at this, the section that Jesus is quoting from, because we do this every time that the New Testament author quotes the Old Testament. Usually they're not just quoting that, that verse and they're like picking it out. It's like, well, that sounds good. Let's just pick that out. It, they're quoting it contextually. And Jesus very much does that here in Zechariah 13. One of the things in the later part of Zechariah, Zechariah 9 through 14, is um, amplifying this idea of a shepherd, uh, and actually multiple shepherds. There's evil shepherds that are not shepherding Israel well, and then there's a shepherd who is, is the right shepherd. He's shepherding Israel well. Now, that's, that comes from long-standing Old Testament terminology, the idea of the Davidic king who is supposed to rule over Israel. Well, David was a shepherd, and that idea of a shepherding terminology, it, it carries over. So when we see this shepherd that shows up in these chapters in Zechariah, we are to understand that this is the one who is to fulfill the promise to David, the Davidic covenant, that they will, um, David will not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. But what's interesting about this shepherd in these chapters in Zechariah is the, this good shepherd, uh, he, is, uh, he sort of fails in his job. Uh, you can actually go back to chapter 11, and you can see that uh, he shepherds, and his shepherding is unsuccessful. And then there's this idea of, give me my wages. And we'll talk more about that passage in a couple weeks. But the, what Jesus quotes here, kind of in this context, is Zechariah 13, and it is speaking to this Davidic king, the one who's supposed to shepherd, the good shepherd that's supposed to shepherd uh, God's people, rule over them. Verse 7 in Zechariah 13, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, yet he is my associate. Against the, my associate, the man who is my associate, declares Yahweh of hosts. So God is speaking. He's speaking here, and he's saying, my sword, go ahead and awake and awake against my associate. This isn't some distant or bad shepherd. This is someone who's close to God. Against my shepherd, against my associate. And so it's striking here that God is saying, my sword, my judgment, Awake against this one. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares Yahweh, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them, and I will say they are my people, and they will say, Yahweh is my God. So this is very interesting. God is saying, strike the shepherd, the flock's going to be scattered. Now, the flock in context of Zechariah is Israel. Israel's going to be scattered. And in fact, two-thirds of Israel is going to be destroyed, and a third is going to remain. But then that one-third is actually going to be refined and uh, to the point where they're now is going to be the, 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 the covenantal language of, they are my people, and Yahweh is my God is going to be spoken over them. So there's this disaster, uh, there's this striking that's going to happen, there's this scattering that then is going to happen, but it's ultimately going to end up in refining God's people, refining God's people. Now, if we were to go back to Matthew and to Jesus and how he is using this, Jesus is saying and applying 
that scripture, Zechariah 13, 7, to himself. Notice who's doing the striking. God. So despite all of the evil of man that is going to happen, despite the betrayal, despite what's going to happen from the Jews and from the Romans, Jesus understands that what is going to happen in him being struck by God's judgment comes from God, comes from God's hand. It's, that's the ultimate source. And now he applies it here in Matthew 26, and he's saying, I'm going to be struck, I'm going to be struck by God, and you all are going to be scattered. Now, in Zechariah, it's used of Israel. Here, it's used of the disciples. Well, why is that? Well, because, um, yeah, the disciples are going to be scattered. They're going to, they're going to go away. In fact, this is like the last scene where we see them with Jesus until after the resurrection. Jesus is going to be alone. But what's going to ultimately happen as well in subsequent history, it starts with Jesus' disciples, but what's going to happen in subsequent history is Israel as a people is going to be put into exile again because they've rejected their Messiah. The Messiah is going to be struck by them. Ultimately, God is the agent, uh, uh, the, the, the planner and the architect of this. But uh, then Israel is going to be scattered. They're going to be devastated, but not ultimately. They're ultimately going to come back, but it's going to start with the disciples. It's going to start with the disciples as Jews. Jesus says that. But what we need to notice is Jesus is saying this. He's saying horrific things about these men who have spent time with him for years. You're going you're gonna to stumble. You're going to be offended by me. You're going to go away. You're going to be scattered. He's predicting that they are going to sin in a horrific way against him. That is what he is predicting. He's predicting he's going to be alone. But notice this then. He predicts this, this horrific reality of what's going to happen to the disciples. Then what does he say in verse 32? But after I am raised up, which Jesus has already predicted. He has predicted his death multiple times, but in conjunction with the prediction of his death and even his death by crucifixion, he has said, I'm going to be raised up. I'm going to rise from the dead. And so he invokes that here. He's like, after I'm raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. Now that's just said very simply, but think about what Jesus is saying. He just said, you're all going to be scattered. You're all going to stumble. You're all going to be offended by me. You're going to sin in a major way against me. But after I'm raised up, we're going to meet again. And in fact, I'm going to gather you again. And I'm going to gather you in Galilee. Which means what? Jesus is already anticipating not only the disciples' failure, but also forgiving them. Gathering them to do his work, as we will see in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, as he gives them a commission, to do work through them. These, these men who have failed him, will fail him. But he's doing this because it's all in accord with the Father's plan as recorded in the Scriptures. Now, in comparison with this, as we see Jesus' kind of submission to this, kind of we, we get the picture that he is just, even though these are horrific things he's speaking about, he is he's calm, he is, he is collected, he is submitted to the Father's plan. But then in comparison with this, we get the disciples' reaction, particularly Peter's. Verse 33, Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, the sentiment is good, right? It is good to say, I'm not going to fall away from Jesus. I'm going to keep following you, Jesus. 
But there is a dependence here, a self-reliance on what he can do. But then Jesus comes back to Peter and says, Jesus, uh, Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, the rooster crows at dawn, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So in, in, uh, against what you are saying, Peter, uh, against what you're promising me in the next few hours before the rooster crows, you're going to die to me three times. Now, this sets up kind of what happened earlier. Remember, uh, Jesus says, I'm going to die on the Passover. And then we get the plotting of the chief priests and the elders. And they're like, uh, let's not do it during the feast. And it sets up this question. Well, who's right? Who's going to win? Who's in control? Same thing happens here. There's this contrast between uh, Jesus saying, you're going to deny me, you're going to fall away. And then Peter is adamantly, as adamantly as he can, notice verse 35, Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So the question is, who's in control? Who's right? And it's also contrasting Jesus' submission to the Father's will versus a kind of blustery human self-reliance that wants to fight against this. And notice it's not just Peter. All the disciples said the same. So the disciples are all against this. They're like, no, 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 no. We're not going to deny you. We're not going to fall away from you. But Jesus says, yeah, you are. Scripture predicts it. This is the plan. But he's also given them hope. He has also given them hope that even after they sin against him in such a horrific way, after I'm raised up, we're going to get together in Galilee again. I'm going to gather you again after being scattered. They're going to gather around the rightful Messiah, the King. What do we learn from just this section? Uh, don't miss and don't pass over the fact that Jesus knows that it's the Father who's ultimately going to strike him. Jesus is the true shepherd of Israel he is the right shepherd, even as Zechariah 13 talks about. But Jesus is going to be absolutely submitted to the Father's plan, even to the point of the Father striking his own son with the sword of judgment. It reminds us once again, and it would have reminded Matthew's Jewish audience, Jesus was not a victim of circumstances. He was surrendered surrendered to the will of his father and by so in so being surrendered and being in accordance with the plan being in accordance with the scriptures he shows that he's the true messiah a crucified a struck uh, a judged messiah a judged messiah by the by god naturally to jewish ears sounds horrific but jesus is saying no this is exactly what the plan has been all along and i'm surrendered to it but you also need to see in connection with all of this. Yes, there's human responsibility. There's a responsibility of Judas, the betrayer. There's a responsibility of the evil of the chief priests and the elders of the people. It's the responsibility of the disciples who are going to fall away, who are going to stumble, who are going to be offended. But then you also see Jesus' character in this. He is willing to forgive great sin against himself. He knows what the disciples, and particularly Peter, are going to do. Jesus, Peter's going to deny him, which means he's going to repudiate Jesus. That's what denial means. He's repudiating Jesus. He's going to repudiate knowing him. He's going to repudiate following him. That's 
That's horrific sin. But he already announces ahead of time the regathering of the disciples to himself after his resurrection. Because that's, that's what his death is supposed to do. Now, the, the disciples haven't worked out all the logic yet, but that's, he can regather the disciples. He can forgive their sin because that's what he said. I'm drinking this cup. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, the cup of, of, uh, of my blood of the covenant for the forgiveness of sin, even horrific sin, as horrific as denying Jesus. And he's going to rescue people, and he's going to regather them. You may think, may, there, there, there could be two possibilities. You may think lightly of your sin, and we're going to talk about um, why you should not think lightly of your sin in, in lieu of what's coming next. But you might think of your sin as beyond God's forgiveness. You might think of your sin as, uh, I can't, God can't possibly accept me. Jesus can't possibly accept me. Not until I fix myself. Not until I clean myself up. But what you need to see here is you need to see Jesus' total willingness to forgive even great sin against himself your sin against him, your horrific sin, your abandonment, your walking away. He is willing to forgive you. So we first, we've seen that Jesus submits to the scriptures for his disciples scattering. Next, we see in verses 36 through 46, Jesus submits to the Father will, Father's will to drink the cup of wrath. Look at verse 36. So at this point, they're, they're on the Mount of Olives. They're to the east of Jerusalem. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. So you got olive trees on the Mount of Olives, and they go to some place, probably some estate. We're not sure where. There's a traditional spot, but we're not sure where. Some place on the Mount of Olives, lower Mount of Olives, and they go to this garden or this orchard. So you can imagine going out to one of the orchards that we have around here, but this is an olive orchard, olive press. So he comes to this place, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So he's got maybe 11 or 12. Again, we don't know when Judas ducks out, but he's got 11 and 12, or 12 of his closest disciples around him. And so he gets to Gethsemane, and he splits off. Most of them, he says, just stay here, and I'm going to go over there and pray. I'm going to go over there and pray. Uh, now we find out, verse 37, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, the three that are Jesus' inner circle, these are the same three that went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. In fact, it's very interesting to compare and contrast the Mount of Transfiguration and what is happening in this Gethsemane. But he's kind of peeling off to his, those who are closest to him. They're still in the, this orchard, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So it's kind of interesting what you see is Jesus becomes, begins to be more and more alone. So initially he's surrounded by the 12 and him, and he splits off, you know, um, nine of the disciples or eight or however many are there. And he's just him and his three closest disciples. And then as he's like splitting away, even his closest disciples, you see Jesus become more and more agitated. And so here you see what's kind of disturbing, actually, Jesus being uh, grieved and distressed. Grieved and distressed. 
Now, what's interesting is if you walk through the Gospels, you walk through Matthew, and you look, um, Jesus has emotion. There's no doubt about it. Uh, he is fully human. He fully displays the, the gamut of human emotions in a rightful way. Uh, but here we see, we see kind of raw, uh, the raw reality of Jesus the Son being human, and he is disturbed which is kind of disturbing to us because everywhere else we see Jesus very much in control. And it's not that he's not in control, but he is disturbed. He is distressed. And he says this, verse 38, they said to him, my soul is very sorrowful. This word is interesting. It's, it's almost like he's surrounded by sorrow. He's being crushed with distress, even to death. He's saying, this is, this is pressing in on me. It's, it's un, almost unbearable. And he tells Peter and James and John, remain here and watch with me. Now, it's really just the idea of keep awake. Remain and keep awake. To do what? Well, Jesus has already said he's going to pray. He's going to go to the Father, and he's going to talk with the Father. And he's effectively saying, just stay here. So Stay here. So he's going to peel off the remaining three disciples and keep awake. To what end? Not just to stay awake, but to pray. They ought to be praying along with Jesus. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. So now he's all alone. Now his disciples are, he split them off, one larger group and then the, the, the inner three. And now we see kind of what, what is Jesus thinking? What is he feeling? What is he doing in this moment? falls on his face. Why does he fall on his face? Because he's distressed, but also to show complete submission to the Father whom he's praying to, reverence. My Father. This is just amazing. You imagine the Son incarnate. No one else around, just him praying to his Father. My Father, if it be possible let this cup pass me by. That's the idea. So he's using some imagery here, and he's envisioning, he's drawing a picture, like this cup isn't sitting in front of him. Like, drink it. And Jesus is saying, if it's possible, let it pass me by. Let it pass by to some other place, someone else. If, let it, I, I don't want to drink this. If it's possible, if it were possible to do that. Now, it's not. We know that. Jesus will know that. But here we see kind of the reality of Jesus' humanness. Remember what we said earlier? Remember uh, in the Olivet Discourse where he says, uh, no one knows the sun, day of the Son's return, not, not even the Son, only the Father. Well, that's because Jesus is living an authentic human life, and he is dependent on the F Father to access his divine attributes. So here we see, you, you, Jesus knows this is the plan. I mean, it's very clear from how he has been talking, how he's been predicting this. He knows this is the plan, but here it's this last moment of, is there another way? Is it possible is it possible for this cup to pass me by? But then always see Jesus' submission, nevertheless, not as I will, not as my preferences, not as my desires, but as you, the Father, will. Jesus is always 100% submitted to the will of the Father. Now, why is Jesus, 
What is he saying? Let this cup pass me by. What's this cup represent? Now, you might think back to the Lord's Supper, and you might think, oh, the cup there, the cup that is the blood of the covenant. But then the, 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 the imagery gets a little funky, uh, because probably Jesus drunk that cup. It, that cup did represent Jesus' death. But what we've come to understand, if we were to look back to the Old Testament, is this imagery of a cup uh, is actually well established. You can turn back to Psalm 75 if you want to. Psalm 75, and Psalm 75 speaks of God's judgment uh, to and against humans. I'll go ahead and pick it up in Psalm 75, verse 6. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of Yahweh there is a cup, with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And this isn't the only spot in the Old Testament where you see this imagery of the cup being God's judgment, the cup being God's wrath, poured out either on a people like a nation, or even as we spread in that psalm, as the cup being drunk by individuals and what? Absorbing the Father's wrath. Now, sometimes that cup represents, you know, at a national level, the whole uh, the, the nation is envisioned in drinking the cup of God's wrath and horrific things happening to that nation. But here the picture is, is someone, an individual, drinking the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. Now, if we do connect this, with the Lord's Supper, we connect it in this way, that Jesus is very clearly said that here's my blood of the covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is very clearly laid out that he is being a substitute wrath bearer on behalf of his people. Matthew one twenty one. you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Uh, later on in Matthew, uh, uh, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this goes behind what Jesus is saying with this language of it's possible. There's only two alternatives. Either the wicked of the earth, which is everyone except Jesus, draining this cup down to the dregs of the Father's wrath, or Jesus is going to drink it. Those are the only two possibilities. But Jesus is saying, is there another way? Is there a way that I don't have to drink your wrath to absorb the wrath of the Father for the sins of the people I am ransoming? Is that possible? Because Jesus, as the Son, has never experienced that. The Son has never experienced the Father's wrath. Now, the Father... Uh, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all share the divine attributes equally. And so the Father has wrath against sin, the Son has wrath against sin, and the Spirit has wrath against sin. But the Son, the person of the Son, has never experienced the displeasure of the Father. In fact, both at Jesus' baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration, what does the Father call the Son? You are my beloved Son. With, I, with whom I am well pleased. 
And by Jesus taking this cup, drinking this cup metaphorically, right? The, the metaphor is the cup, but it's going to, it depicts the reality of the Son drinking and absorbing the wrath of God that sinners deserve. Jesus is not just afraid of the physical pain and suffering of the cross. He is dreading being counted as sin and being the target of the Father's wrath against him, which he has never experienced. That is what Jesus is dreading. It's as horrific as the crucifixion is in terms of pain and suffering and torture. It's horrific, but it does not give anywhere near the reality of bearing and drinking. There's not a more visceral picture than this. Drinking the infinite weight of the wrath of God. Jesus is saying, if there's another way, I prefer not to do that. I prefer not to do that. But he's always submitted to the Father's will. Not as I will, but as you will. That's his first prayer. Verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me? Could you not keep awake with me one hour? Now that's kind of, really it is a dig, I think. You know, back to what Peter just professed. Right? He said, I, I, I'll, I'll, um, I'll die before I deny you. I'm not going to fall away. And it's this, this picture of Peter and the rest of the disciples saying, yeah, we can do it. We can make it. We can, even if you think back earlier, James and John says, I, we can drink the cup that you can drink, right? There's this reliance and this boasting in what humanity can do. And here we see just the frailty of it. They fall asleep. Couldn't even sleep for one hour. What does Jesus say? Verse 41 Keep awake and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, what is he talking about? Well, they have professed that uh, they're going to stick with Jesus. They're not going to fall away. They're not going to deny. Well, if that's their intention, then the only way you're going to make that work is by serious prayer. Because you don't have the strength. But what we see in all of this is this contrast between the son's submission and dependence on the father through his ordeal versus the natural human weakness of self-reliance and failure. Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing. You guys were plenty eager in spirit, and your, spirit, your, your, your desire is good, but the flesh is weak. You guys are weak. And the only way you're going to make it through is dependence on the Father. Jesus is incarnated in weak human flesh. How is he getting through this ordeal? Through prayer and dependence and submission to the Father. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass by unless I drink it, if I don't drink it and it can't pass by, your will be done. Basically the same thing as he said before, but you detect he's more resigned to this. He knows, again, it's reaffirmed again, this is the Father's will, this is the only way. Either a guilty humanity drinks the cup of the Father's wrath or Jesus drinks it. That's it. No other possibility. He says, your will be done. This is your will, I'm submitted to it. 
Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, it's not clear whether he wakes them up again or he just leaves. But he leaves them again, goes away, prays for the third time, saying the same thing again. If it's possible, may this cup pass by, but not as I will, but yours begun. If it's not possible for this to pass by, this cup to pass by without me drinking it, your will must be done. Then he comes back. Then he said to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. Basically, the idea is at this point, just uh, you guys are going to have to sleep later because we got things to do here. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the moment where there's no return. Jesus could have run. Jesus could have said, no, I'm not doing this. I'm backing out. But past this moment, there's no return. He's going to the cross, and he's going because he is fully submitted to the Father's will. We see Jesus strong in submission to his Father, and we see the weakness of the disciples in their self-reliance. We must avoid thinking that though Jesus knew what he needed to do and was submitted to the Father's will, well, this was easy. This is not easy. We see the realness of the incarnation. We see the Son living through a human nature, recoiling from, yeah, to a degree, death and suffering for sure, but recoiling more as the eternal Son who knows his Father and knows that drinking this cup means being treated as sin, being treated as the target of the Father's sword, being treated as something distasteful that's never happened before in the life of the Trinity. Your sin demands a cup of the infinite wrath of God. God is doing sin is not just doing naughty things. Okay, It's not making a mistake. It's not a sickness. It's not a disease. It's rebellion. It's high treason against the God who has created you to worship him, to love him with all of who you are. And whenever you fail to love him with all of who you are, you deserve, that's a slap to the face of the infinitely worthy God of the universe, which deserves an infinite punishment, which deserves you draining forever the cup of the Father's wrath. Just imagine uh, we, you don't have to imagine. Go to Revelation 14. You do not have to imagine what this means for an individual to drink the Father's wrath. We get a picture of it. Revelation 14, 9, and 10. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast, so this is false worship, which is what we all do, that's the essence of sin, is false worship. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on its hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The alternative for you as a rebel against the King of Kings and Lord of the Lords is either to drink that cup And because it's an infinite offense against an infinitely worthy and holy God to drink it forever, 
You will never get to the end in the bottom of that cup. You will never reach the dregs. You will only know suffering and pain forever and ever because of the infinite offense against an infinitely holy God that you've spurned and slapped in the face. Or the alternative in some ways is equally as horrifying or through turning your allegiance from sin and self and depending totally on Jesus, Jesus has drunken that cup for you. Not will, has on the cross. He drunk it in a few hours because he is that worthy, that valuable, that he can not only cancel the debt, but fill your bank account with worth because of who he is. Only he could drink that cup in a finite amount of time. So you can either drink it forever or you can have the son of God drink it for you. That is it. That are the only two alternatives. There is no other possibility. Don't think of sin lightly. We sung that song last week, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, and it talks about ye who think of sin but lightly don't, or don't think the evil great. Here at the cross may estimate its evil rightly, may estimate the, the true horror of sin. So Jesus submits to the scriptures for his disciples' gathering. Jesus submits to the Father's will to drink the cup of wrath. And finally, verses 47 through 56, Jesus submits to the scriptures for his betrayal and arrest. Jesus submits to the scriptures for his betrayal and arrest. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, we already know Judas is one of the 12, but it's just a, it's like this emphasis. Can you believe it? One of the 12, one of the closest to Jesus. And with him, a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So the chief priests and the elders of the people, those are the po folks who plotted. Those have been the people who have been opposed to Jesus. They're operating in the background. They send a crowd. They send a crowd with swords and clubs. Now, but the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man sees him, which kind of makes sense. It's dark. Uh, it's not like there's streetlights all over the place, um, that sort of thing. Uh, there's confusion. So how is, how are they how is Judas going to practically identify uh, the son of uh, man? How is he going to identify Jesus through a kiss, which is a normal greeting in that culture in that time? He came up to Jesus and once, at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi which would be a fairly normal thing to do in greeting, especially your supposed master. He kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. It's probably actually more of a question. Friend, why are you here? More of a rhetorical question, that is. Um, why are you here? What are you doing? You know and I know what you're doing. Why are you, why are you giving a, a kiss of greeting when it's totally opposite your purpose and what you've come to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. 
Now, we're not told who this is in Matthew, although we find out later it's Peter, although we probably could have guessed from Matthew as well. This is, this is totally in line with Peter, and it, it makes sense, right? Like, this is the moment. This is where I get to fight. This is what Peter's saying. This is where I get to fight for my master. This is where I get to uh, rescue him. This is where I get to stand with him. So he draws and he cuts off the high priest's ear. What does Jesus do? Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. So he's telling this individual disciple, put it back in the sheath. And then kind of this proverbial statement, why? Why should he put it back into its sheath? For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. What is he saying? I think he's saying, here are the limits. If we think about um, what the sword can do, the sword has its place in a fallen human world. God uses it to check human corruption. But if you think about it, all uh, militarism through time, uh, you've got one empire or nation that rises through the sword and another falls through the sword and back and forth and back and forth. It doesn't fix anything ultimately. And that's what Jesus is doing with his disciple. Like, this isn't going to fix anything. This isn't going to uh, this isn't going to do anything. This is the limit of what human flesh can do. Human flesh, self-reliant, thinks it can just fight its way through. That's not what's going to happen here. It's, this is not going to, the Father's plan is not going to be established through military might or fighting. And then he gives another reason. Verse 53, do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, which he was just doing, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. A legion at the very minimum probably had 6,000. So you're talking at least 72,000 angels. Um, so parts of the armies of heaven that we hear about through scripture, Jesus can just appeal and like that, they would be there ready to go. To extract him, to fight for him, to obliterate this ragtag mob coming against him. But what does he say? That could happen. I could do that. I could fight better than you are. I'm not going to rely on some, a bunch of wimpy fishermen with, uh, that have no military training to, to fight against me. If I was going to do that, I would rely on angels. But what does Jesus doing? Verse 54, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? You see, it's the same thing. It's the same thing with quoting Zechariah. It's the same thing in the garden. It's the same thing here. He is submitted to the Father's will. This is what the Father has planned. I am submitted to that. Uh, yeah, I could get myself out of this. I could, I could run or I could fight, but I'm not going to. He's going ahead with it. He is submitted to the Father's plan. Now, that was Jesus addressing his disciples, and one disciple in particular. But then he addresses the crowds. Now, this is interesting. Verses 55, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds. Now, the crowds throughout Matthew are, are really interesting because they have formed kind of this neutral group. In Galilee, you know, they're between being full disciples and being um, uh, opponents to Jesus. And really what we see is when Jesus enters Jerusalem, the, the, the Galilean crowds are acclaiming him as the son of God. They're claiming him as Messiah. But then there's this question, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, uh, what are the Jerusalem crowds going to do? What are the Jerusalem crowds going to do? And here we see they're totally under the thumb of the false shepherds of Israel, the chief priests and the elders. And so now he addresses them. Now these crowds, the Jerusalem crowds have turned against him. 
Verse 55, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you, and here it's probably a statement, you've come out as against a robber. And the word here for robber is probably more like the idea of rebel or insurrectionist or terrorist. That's how we would think about it. You've come out as against an insurrectionist. They've got a very good force, right? It's not just a common robber, like a shoplifter or something like that. Uh, no, this is as if someone is leading an insurrection and a rebellion. So that's how they've armed themselves to come out with swords and clubs to capture, to, to apprehend him. But then he says this, that's contrasted with day after the day, I was in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. So the same crowd that is coming here and gathering him, they're the same crowd that has seen him to be teaching in the temple. And if anyone's doing harm as some sort of insurrectionist, well, here's this guy teaching openly in the temple, gathering people to him. Why didn't you just arrest me then? Well, what is it highlighting? It's highlighting, Jesus is highlighting the subterfuge, the disingenuousness, the injustice of what is happening. And what does he say? Verse 56, but all of this has taken place, again, same refrain, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. One particular place you could go in the scriptures to see that, you don't have to turn there, is Isaiah 53, 8, where it talks about the suffering servant being taken by injustice, by oppression of justice. Well, that's what's exactly happening here. It's that refrain again, Jesus is submitted to the Father's plan. That's why he's going ahead with it. Not because he can't escape it, not because he can't fight them off, but because this is necessary to deal with human sin. And then we get this final refrain, which forms kind of a bookend of where we started today. Then all the disciples left him and fled. It's exactly what Jesus said. Remember the question? Well, the disciples are professing allegiance. They're professing the, the Peter's not going to deny him. They're going to stake with him. They're not going to stumble. They're not going to fall. We've already seen kind of through the Gethsemane, they've started to stumble. They've started to show their human weakness. And here we see them totally collapse because Jesus is in total control. He knew what was going to happen and they fled. And he's not going to see them again until after his resurrection. What do we learn? Jesus had all the resources at his disposal to fight back and win. If Gethsemane was about, well, could he run? Is he going to run? Uh, this is more about, is he going to fight? Is he going to fight? He had all the resources at his disposal to fight back and win what we would think of as winning, but he didn't. Why? Because he sought to fulfill the Father's plan to rescue sinners not just the establishment of his reign as king. Now, Jesus is the king, and he will reign on this earth. Remember what, uh, remember what Satan tempted him with at the very beginning. Um, if you bow down and worship me, uh, you know, all the kingdoms of the world can be yours. You can shortcut the cross. You don't have to go there. Jesus is going to reign, but think of it this way. If Jesus did not go to the cross and, um, and he just destroyed all his enemies... Uh, he would be a king over an empty kingdom. If Jesus didn't go to the cross and destroyed all his enemies, there'd be no other humans in the kingdom. Yeah, he would rule over angels as he always has done, but there would be no other humans in the kingdom. See, losing in Gethsemane meant winning. That's how Christianity works. Losing is winning. Losing in the right way, losing Independence on the Father, losing independence on Jesus is winning. Jesus is worthy of your trust. When you follow him, 
your reliance on yourself and the flesh dies. You don't rely on running. You don't rely on fighting back. You don't rely on your own strength. You rely totally and only on Jesus. Trust in the Father and his plan. And even when it feels like you're losing everything, you know, I belong to Jesus. I belong to the one who faced death, faced the wrath of God in my place and has rescued me. We're all self-reliant by nature. Self-reliance will lead you to shame, just like the disciples. Um, Self-reliance in fighting sin. I can be good enough. Self-reliance in accruing worth. I can work hard enough. I can accrue enough honor. I can accrue enough wealth. I can do it. It's just going to lead you to shame. Even in following Jesus, like these, like the disciples are here doing, we're think, we think, oh, I can fight sin. I can be holy enough. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. No, you can't. It's not hard. It's impossible. But how did Jesus, how did Jesus face his ordeal? Through dependence. Dependence on the Father. Trust in the Father. We walk the Christian life not through our strength, but through the reliance on the power of another. We rely on the power of God through the Holy Spirit in prayer, which is what the disciples should have been doing in the garden. Faith in Jesus and what he has done is not flippant. It must not be flippant. We must see Jesus' strength and submission to the Father, his ability to rescue sinners like you and like me, renouncing self-reliance and declaring dependence totally and only on Jesus, depending on his power, depending and submitting like he did to the Father. So follow the dying Messiah submitted to the Father's will. Let's pray. Lord God, we are a proud people. Uh, We think highly of ourselves and what we can do, but we can do nothing. Uh, We cannot save ourselves. We cannot find true meaning and true satisfaction, true life apart from you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did what we could not do. You, You died in our place. You drunk the cup of the Father's wrath to the dregs and emptied it, and it is gone, such that when we trust in you, there's no guilt no fear of punishment anymore, but only rejoicing and a delight to follow you and obey you by your strength and by your grace to the end. Give us that strength. We are, we are powerless, but we thank you that you've given the Holy Spirit to work in our lives so that we can continue to trust, continue to depend, and follow you to the end. Guard us from being self-reliant like the disciples, like we naturally are, Grant us total dependence and trust and surrender to you. We ask these things and pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand with me for a benediction. Ephesians 1.15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, 
and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Church, you are sent.